Dean Radin is the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and is a pioneer when it comes to the scientific study of parapsychology and consciousness. He's written numerous books, including The Conscious Universe, The Scientific Truth of Psychic Phenomena, and Real Magic, Ancient Magic, Modern Science, and A Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. This is my second interview with Dean. You can find the link to the first in the description. Thank you for listening to the audio version of Unraveling the Universe. We now have over 1,000 of you listening to almost every episode, but unfortunately, we don't earn a penny for all of our work and downloads because of where we're based. We work full-time on this podcast, and I'm hoping to be able to continue to do that. Without your help, it will be impossible. We will do everything we can to minimize ads, and we'll always keep the show free for you. If you enjoy our interviews and can afford to help us, please consider a monthly contribution via Patreon. The link is in the description. Thank you. Your help means the universe to us. Thank you for doing this with me again, Dean. I, I really appreciate it. You mentioned prior to this interview that you're working on an experiment now that might be interesting for us to talk about. So I thought that would be a great place to start. So yeah, if you want to take it away and talk about that in as much detail as you like, that would be, that'd be great. What I'm working on now is a continuation of research that we've been doing for the past 10 years or more. And it is, uh, in a sense, linking aspects of parapsychology into mainstream physics. We're addressing an, a mind-matter interaction possibility, which is suggested by the quantum observer effect. So the way that this effect is demonstrated in the physics lab is through typically through a double-slit optical system. So you, you send uh, photons either with a continuous laser beam or one photon at a time through two tiny little slits, which will create an interference pattern. And... The, the point of all this is that uh, when you do that and you see how the photons behave after they go through the two slits, you get an interference pattern, a wave-like pattern. So this is, a this is the way of showing the wave-like nature of light. The mystery is that if you know which of the two slits that a photon goes through, it doesn't behave that way anymore. It behaves like a particle. Mm -hmm. So that's the quantum observer effect. And it's not just with photons, it's with electrons and virtually any elementary particle even larger particles now, like atoms that have been tested. And there, there are many interpretations about why this, is, why this effect happens. Some will say that the reason why this happens, why you go from a wave-like description into a particle description is because if you put a detector behind one of the slits, that the act of interfering with the detector itself like a photon colliding with the detector will stop the wave-like nature of it and becomes a particle. So mm -hmm. it's it's being forced to turn into a particle, essentially. And that description is incorrect, even though it's actually, you see this on YouTube, if you ask, well, what is the quantum observer effect? Does it have anything to do with consciousness? And the confident answer is no, and it's wrong. And the reason why we know that that's wrong is due to something called the Renninger effect otherwise called a um, a no interference effect or no interaction effect. So the way it works is, let's say you have a double slit and you put a detector behind one of the two slits. And so it then that would give you information about which of the two slits the photon is going through if that detector goes off. yeah, Like if it goes click, you know that it went that way. Well, now you're going to get a particle. Uh, it's actually a diffraction pattern, but you'll get a particle-like distribution. But what if it goes to the other slit? There wasn't anything there, right? There was nothing to detect it because you didn't have something there. Well, so there was no interaction, 
but you know, because you fired the photon and the detector did not go off, you know that it went through the other one. So it's the knowledge that will cause it to collapse into a particle. And, and so this has been known initially as a thought experiment, but now we know that it's actually true that what matters is knowledge what you know, not an interaction with a with some kind of detector system. Yeah. Well, that makes it very, very strange. And, and and even in the list of things that are considered weird about quantum mechanics, this one is like at the top of the list. How is it that that light or elementary particles are shy? That they, yeah. they know they're being observed somehow. So you can find lots of prominent uh, founders of quantum mechanics, even up to the present day, who have said that this suggests there's something unusual about knowing, and we know through our awareness or consciousness, that is interacting with at least the quantum world, and maybe beyond, but at least at the quantum scale, we can look at it. Okay, so that sounds like it's some sort of a mind-matter interaction effect, consciousness interacting with the physical world in some way. Mm-hmm. So when you you do this experiment with a double slit system, you simply ask people to use their mind's eye to imagine that they can get which path information. Well, photons are really small and they're moving really fast and the, the double slit, the slits themselves are a matter of microns wide. So if you hold up a double slit and you look through it, maybe you'd be able to see that there are two slits, but most people can't because it's, it's so small that it looks like just a little bit of light coming through, but it's two slits. So how can you do that? Well, it's not that easy to do it, especially since you're not looking at it with your eye you're imagining that you could look at it with your mind's eye. So you have some kind of a optical system in front of you. It is sealed because you don't want external light coming in. And you simply imagine that you can get this, this information. Well, from a, a conventional perspective, that doesn't make any sense because how could you do that? From a, a perspective that says, well, we have pretty good evidence that clairvoyance, remote viewing, whatever we wish to call it, that does exist. It's pretty weak. It's not very accurate for most people most of the time. But if it occurred at all, then you would be able to gain which path information about what the photons are doing, and that would cause a collapse, a very small collapse, so-called collapse, from wave-like to particle-like. So you need a sensitive system to be able to detect the difference between your mind focusing on the system versus not. And so you, you, you need to take a lot of data you need to have a sensitive measurement. And so through all of our experiments, we've we found pretty good evidence, we think, that it looks like, yeah, you, somehow the mind can get information at this quantum scale. So as, as it happens in any area of science that uh, we've done the experiments, we're pretty sure we're getting an interesting result, but we're not even sure we believe it until we start seeing other people getting similar results. So that's yeah. where replication becomes so important. So as, as uh, of today, there are five uh, laboratories that have done this experiment, of which four have reported interesting results, like n- not, not null results. Mm-hmm. And the one uh, lab that reported uh, no effect, afterwards the data were looked at, and it actually did show a significant effect in variance. So the, the, the subtlety here is that if there is literally a collapse of waves to particles, that's considered a directional hypothesis. It's like going from here to there, that direction. But as I started to do more and more experiments, and I've seen this in other people's data too, generally what's happening is that when the mind is focusing on an optical system, 
you can't really focus for very long before you start thinking, you start dreaming about lunch or something. And so the mind wanders. Yeah. Even in advanced meditators, you say, go think about that and don't think about anything else. You can do that for three seconds and then your mind wanders. So what do you do about that? Well, from a statistical perspective, then you can say that during the period, say 30 second period where you're focusing on an optical system, there's going to be a lot of variance going on. Sometimes like collapsing and not collapsing or collapsing. It's like going all over the place. Well, that's a variance measure as compared to when you're not paying attention to it at all, then it should be relatively quiet because nothing's happening to it. So you compare the amount of variance while observing versus not observing, and you do that, all of the laboratories so far, all five labs are showing this kind of variance effect. Wow. So that again is, is a, a way of saying that something is happening when people direct their mind at, a, at in this case, photons, but at the quantum scale. Yeah. <clears throat> so I know at least of one, maybe two other labs that are doing this kind of experiment, but they haven't reported the results yet. So at some point, there's there will be a large enough body of data for, to get more and more confidence that something interesting is happening. It's very important from a physics perspective because there are still way over a dozen interpretations of quantum mechanics, like what is it telling us about physical reality? One of the possible interpretations is that somehow consciousness is involved in it. <clears throat> and so anything that helps inform which one of these interpretations is correct is going to help advance the state of the knowledge. So that's good. But we need many more replications. Yeah. So it takes a certain degree of technical skill to be able to make and use a double slit system and to analyze the data and so on. So the, what I'm working on now is a way of getting many replications, a multi-center, multi-person replication. So that's why I've built little interferometers. Mm -hmm. So this this starts, uh, th this has a uh, diffraction pattern in it or a diffraction grading rather than a double slit, but it's an optical system. Uh, you, you plug it into your computer. Uh, it has lots and lots of different sensors in there, but primarily uh, light sensors. Um, and this is a, a 3D printed box. It's like built from scratch, the whole wow. thing, specifically nice. for this type of experiment. So I've made 50 of these things, and I'm in the process now of recruiting people to do to participate. A lot of people would like to participate just for fun, yeah. but because it, it takes so much time and energy to make each box, I'm going through a, a multi-phase, at least month-long recruitment process to find people who are likely to be able to do this. Mm -hmm. And so two categories of people. I, I will, of course, put out a, a call for uh, people who want to participate and have a description. And I might even use this as a one of the ways of describing that. Yeah. So um, half of the people I'm looking for will be people who are practicing magicians, esoteric type magicians, real magic, and in particular sigil magic. So the magic involving symbols. You make a symbol of the of your intention and use that as part of your magical process. And I have a grant that which allowed me to make these boxes from an organization that is the about for the study of esoteric practices, including magic. Uh, so half of the people will be magicians. Half mm -hmm. the other people will be either meditators or martial artists or other people who are involved in focused attention, mm -hmm. some form of focused in, intention. 
but do not do magical practices. So we'll have an opportunity of testing, did the magic help or not? Like people doing that, does that, because this particular magic is all about use of your intention, right? It's not only focus, but it's intentional effects that you're, you're aiming for. Yeah. So we'll we'll have a test of magic, and we'll also have a test of this uh, quantum observer effect with the same thing. So one of the things I'll be describing to people then is not only will, if you're selected, you will get the box, and we have a multicolored LED, which will give you immediate feedback as to how you're doing, and you'll also see feedback on the computer. You'll also get a little laughing Buddha statue, which you can put on top of it if you wish. And the reason why I chose this is uh, because the attitude that one should take in this kind of experiment, whether it's magical practice or not, is one of lightness. Mm. It's not only like in multiple terms of lightness, but it's to maintain an attitude that this is, you're not going to mentally grunt and groan at this. That doesn't work. You need to maintain this very light sense of, oh, I think I'll try this now. So that's one of the things that people will get. And the other thing will be uh, a sticker this actually made uh, used AI to make a sigil with the uh, all-seeing eye. Yeah. So that's so that's what it came up with, and it's a yeah, little sticker. Cool. You can stick it on there or stick it somewhere else that you want. So all of these are little reminders that in the experiment, yeah, the results would be quite interesting and important from a physics perspective, but in the process of doing it, uh, you need to maintain an unusual state of... of of attention, which is effortless striving. Mm. So no effort at all. And at exactly the same time, the most motivation that you can possibly put together for for the experiment. And only in 30 second burst, you burst for 30 seconds without pushing, even though it looks like I'm pushing, uh, and then you withdraw for 30 seconds. And you do this back and forth for 20 minutes and then that's the experiment. And then- Multiple times, like regularly, or, or how many times would people do that? Well, one session is 20 minutes, and I'm going to ask people to do 10 sessions. Mm-hmm. So some people will be getting this who are uh, in a university, and so they can then also run it on people that they recruit. So with 50 boxes out there, I'm going to get a minimum of 500 sessions. Mm-hmm. That's like the 50 people times 10, and yeah. maybe more. So the yeah. more, the better, because these effects are small. They do vary from person to person. Uh, we'll probably end up using a variance measure as the main predictor, and everything will be pre-registered. Like this is this is exactly what I'm going to do. I may do uh, other kinds of analyses, like machine learning analysis of this, because we could be overlooking patterns that I haven't even thought of, but a machine could find it pretty easily. The other interesting twist on this is that normally you'd come into the laboratory and you have a very fancy setup and it's very high control. This is a little bit different because in the in the magical world, it's very difficult to do magic on abstract uh, targets. You, like mm-hmm. you, you need to have some sort of a personal connection with the thing. Right. So here you go. Here's your personal connection with the little Buddha thing and and the box that you will have with you. So you can do it under whatever circumstances you would need to to feel like you're in contact with it. But at the same time, I don't want somebody messing with the box. I'm not there to watch them. Yeah. So that's why there's a ton of sensors inside the box so that I can detect what the environment is like mm-hmm. and whether they're trying to mess with it in some way. Right. So part of the instructions will be 
Kuthas in a very quiet location that is relatively dim lit uh, and very stable. Mm -hmm. And I can tell all of that because of the nature of the sensors inside the box. And if I, so if I detect too much movement, too much electromagnetics, too much magnetics, too much fill in the blank, then that session I can't use. Yeah. And I'll tell people in advance, don't mess with it because that data won't be usable. So the, the other part is that uh, there's multiple places where the data is stored. So all of this has to do with data integrity, given the unusual nature of here's the box, you know, do something with it. Yeah. The data is encrypted. So it's, it's the, the data is being generated and going onto your computer, but it's in an encrypted form. So even though you will have a copy of that data on your computer, yeah, it's also sent to me, but it's in a form where only I know how to decrypt it. So what we're doing as much as I possibly can to optimize all of the elements of what's required for a scientific experiment, but also the elements that are required on the human side to to feel like you're actually in connection with the box. Yeah. And it's it's very very difficult to optimize all of it, but this is this is the the approach I'm taking at this point. Yeah, awesome. So when are you planning to like send them out? And like, so when do you want to finish your recruitment drive? When do you want to send them out? And when do you hope to get them back again, or at least like be, be finished and and kind of process your results and and analyze your results? Well, so I I am aiming to finish the recruitment process by the end of this year, twenty twenty three. And so I plan to start sending them out at the beginning of 2024. And this is partially also to avoid the the big mailing rush that happens when people are sending presents around uh, Christmas yeah. time. So the beginning of the of the new year is when I'll, I will have selected the 50 people and we'll send the boxes. Uh, domestically within the United States, people will get it within a week or two uh, overseas because people could be from anywhere in the world. It might take as much as three weeks or a month before they get it. So I'm hoping to start getting the data in February and I'll give people one month, one month to do 10 sessions. Yeah. So that's that's a total of five hours of time over the course of one month. And I'll strongly recommend that people do not do more than one session a day mm -hmm. because pe oftentimes people will do it and say, oh, I did really well, or they think they did really well and do another one and another one. That is not optimal at all. Yeah, it's like yeah. we we try to take advantage of the first timer effect every single time, and it's very difficult to do that if you keep doing it in a row. Mm -hmm. And I so, suppose you're going to be recording loads of bits of data, like kind of interesting things. So I suppose you'll be able to look in the end and say you might have an interesting effect that says people have more success in the morning or like shortly after they wake up, or you know various things like that. I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah. Or maybe we're even with the up, weather, like that's a bit more complicated. But yeah, maybe. Well, no, no, it's actually like picking up weather too. Oh wow! Like we, nice. we, we'll know where where the box is. We'll know the barometric pressure, the humidity, the temperature, all of these oh, awesome. local environmental effects. Mm -hmm. And knowing where they are, we'll know what the, what the state of the geomagnetic field is, and lots and lots of things. So we're we're collecting many many variables, and fairly fast. So yeah. each session, we're we're producing a ton of data. Yeah, that's brilliant. Wow. I'm looking forward to, to hearing the results of that. Um, and you said the two groups is going to be magicians. So is that just, in essence, people that have psychic or use their psychic abilities or whatever? Is, or is that something more complicated, a magician in, in the real sense? People who use techniques that are considered to be the esoteric practices. So okay, there so may yeah. be ritual magicians, there may be people using sigils, 
word magic. I mean, there's there's dozens of different kinds of techniques that, that have developed over the years. We want to focus on sigils partially because it's one of the easiest, relatively modern approaches where you create your own sigil. And the difference then when uh, for somebody in the laboratory is typically given instructions of focus your mind over there and do that without any kind of preparation or ritual or anything. Whereas the value of ritual preparation, which is what magicians generally do, especially by creating a sigil, mm -hmm. is that you don't you don't actually focus on the details at all, right? The task is do a session and get a good result. That's the intention. Like yeah. it doesn't matter how that happens. That's what you want to achieve, and so it's it's valuable because then you don't you're not analytically thinking about what you're doing at every moment along the way. You're you're focusing on the outcome, on the end goal. Are you and that's giving... how a lot of magic Sorry. works. You, it's a teleological process where the goal is the thing, not not the process of it, mm -hmm. because in, at least within magical traditions. Uh, you don't know in advance what the process is. You know what you want and sort of throw it out to the universe and say, you figure it out. You make things happen in such a way so you get this result. So it's a little bit like an exercise in a in crafting a synchronicity. Mm -hmm. So synchronicity is a meaningful coincidence. This is kind of a meaningful coincidence, except it's a constructed one. Yeah, that, That's a way of, of thinking about it. It's something accidentally happens that is exactly what you want, you at least consciously didn't know in advance how it was going to happen, but it does. Well, yeah. then that's a positive magical outcome. And that would work in this case too. Yeah. Wow. Um, so in again, back to your kind of what you're sending the boxes, are, are you giving people like instructions for like maybe, yeah, how they should do this, or, like uh, how they should, what they should be doing beforehand, or is it literally just kind of go about your lives and do it as and when I'm just thinking like, would there be are you thinking of doing things like saying uh turn off all the lights like for, for one session try and be in a dark room try and spend 15 minutes getting into a meditative state before or you know spend five minutes doing focus breathing and then try the the box or are you doing anything like that or yeah how are you handling that side yeah i will be giving many suggestions like that yeah, yeah. uh each session the first 10 minutes of each session is a calibration period so you don't do anything for 10 minutes so okay. that during that 10 minutes, you could do anything that you want, probably should not run around the block. Although for some people, you know, that, that could be a way of relaxing them or getting them charged up or something. Yeah. But that 10 minute period is designed in partially so that the box gets a chance to, to calm down because there's a lot of electronics in it. Mm -hmm. uh, but also to give people who wish to spend 10 minutes in meditation or 10 minutes on a ritual or 10 minutes doing something, it's not that long. Yeah. But it's long enough that it gives you a chance to get ready. It's like a get ready for 10 minutes to do something. And then for the next 20 minutes, you'll do something. And these time periods were selected because it's a little bit like saying that, you know, I really should be doing some exercise today, but I, I don't have the time. I, I, I have too many other things to do. You say, yeah. well, what if you spent like a minute, spent one minute exercise that? Oh, yeah, I, I could do that. Well, what about five minutes? So, yeah, maybe 10 minutes. How about 10 minutes? You know, 10 minutes, and then you don't have to do any more exercise all, all the rest of the day. Would that be good? Okay, I guess I could do that. What about 20 minutes? You can see, you can keep pushing this up to the yeah. point where 
suddenly everybody really does have 30 minutes that they can carve out if they needed to, if they wanted to. So part of the selection process in this is not to get people who casually say, oh, I'd like to try that. That's not good enough. They have to be really motivated to do this because they're giving up five hours worth of time, their time, with a focused effort. They're not sitting there reading a book. They're actually trying the experiment. That's even, by the way, even in the laboratory, it's hard to get people to do it. It's for many people who we we select because they're convenient. When you come in and do this for half an hour in the lab, oh, okay, I'll give it a shot. That's not optimal way of selecting people. You really, mm-hmm. you need to get people who would seriously try to do the the task, yeah. but not try by pushing. So you can see it's, it's not easy to find these people. So I'm hoping that we, by doing this multi-step process where they answer questionnaires and then do a performance test and we have a one-to-one Zoom with each person, mm-hmm. we will eventually find 50 people who are as best as we can be the right people to do this kind of a task. Yeah. Interestingly, I've talked to a lot of magicians in preparation of this, including some who are, are famous in the sense that they're well-known authors of, of books on, on magic. Most of them don't want to do it, and which is which I find quite interesting, but also understandable. And the, the reason that they don't want to do it is because, first of all, they believe that magic is uh, sporadic and and difficult to to know in advance if it's going to work because mm-hmm. it really is much like you have this intention you throw it out there and then you kind of forget it say you know you you figure it out somehow universe help me do this yeah so there isn't actually much in terms of understanding how it works even though there are theories of magic it's it's still pretty much i really want this boom okay now let's see if it works so it's it's more of a playful attitude, even though it might be serious intention. And so it's a little bit tricky to then put it to the test, right? So in many ways, I'm more magical than they are. I'm saying, okay, this magic stuff is really real. Let's test it and actually yeah. see if this thing works. So it's much riskier in that sense. But the other reason why magicians may, may be reluctant is because a very strong component of magic is belief. Right. You have to have absolute belief that it's going to work because the moment that doubt comes into play, it's you know it breaks the bubble. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult to maintain belief in the face of doing some sort of experiment that might tell you that you've been delusional all this time. Yeah. That actually, nothing is happening. So again, the selection process will will find people, especially in the magical side, who are willing to put it to the test. And again, that's why I have the Buddha there. Is saying that uh, this take a lighthearted approach to this, like you know, like it's a game. It's not you know it's not going to define yourself for the rest of eternity. It's yeah. a game that is looking. It's we're using science to study this kind of a thing. People have to agree to that, and any doubt that arises, you need to suspend it for the the course of the experiment and even what the results are. So my own belief on this is that because we've seen this actually get good results with people who are not magicians, mm-hmm. just people that are interested in doing the experiment in a lab. Well, I expect that magicians could do it too, and maybe yeah. even do it better. So yeah. that's one of the reasons we're doing it as an experiment. Yeah, it will be interesting to see Yeah, what, what the levels are, like how accurate and stuff, or how efficient 
And the other group is going to be, you said, meditators, uh, kung, like martial artists. Did you say musicians or anything else, sports people? Yeah, anybody who, who has some form of attention training. So uh, friends of mine who are programmers will say that, yeah, or people who play video games, mm -hmm. right? They spend long periods of time doing highly focused effort. Uh, this is a little unusual in that it's 30 seconds completely focused there and then withdrawing. Mm -hmm. or 30 seconds there and then 30 seconds there away from it so however you want to do it but the the idea is that you're shifting attention so many people in professions do that as part of their their job uh, and so we'll we'll find out depending on who responds to the request for candidates and i guess for that category there's going to be no you know no specific beliefs or anything like that that people have to you know like, do they have to be open-minded to the reality of this? Yeah, you're not going to take people that say, no way, that's impossible, and I can't do it. Yeah, no, it, it would not be useful to get people who are internally thinking or consciously or unconsciously saying, this is bullshit. Yeah. Because then why would you spend five hours doing something in which you have no interest? Yeah. So we want people who are motivated because they think at least maybe it works. I'll give it a shot, give it my best shot. And then and see what happens. But it's very different if you get somebody who th who's uh, from the get go saying this is not going to work. Yeah. Because if there's anything that we've learned doing parapsychological work, is that the ability to demonstrate these these kinds of effects on demand is strongly modulated by what you expect, mm. by your belief. Yeah. So why start working with people who don't think it's even possible? That's a waste of time. Yeah, a preset limitation. Yeah, best yeah. to avoid that. Um. Okay, amazing. Is there anything else you wanted to say about this experiment before we move on? Again, we'll come back to it next year at some point, maybe later next year when you've done it and we, we got some results and we can dig through those. But yeah, for now, is there anything else that you wanted to say? Or, or... Maintain that, that, uh, that lighthearted state with a little Buddha. These, these are made, these are printed, by the way, little oh, really? printed statues. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, 3D printing is crazy. I, I've never seen anything be printed out or never 3D printed anything myself. Yeah, so uh, be, because this was custom designed and custom made, I made all of them. I yeah. print, I 3D printed the, the enclosures too. And there's a, a lot of stuff inside that's been printed as well to protect the, the components from light. So there's, wow. there's a bunch of printing that went on to, to make that thing. And yeah, it's fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Like, I guess it's going to open up the, you know, the, the possibilities to do way more of these kind of experiments. Because I guess in the past you would have needed to contact in you know, a factory or some kind of industry. And, and yeah. yeah, in fact, in the process of finding um, uh, templates for doing printing of stuff like little boxes and stuff, I found that there's there's a whole community of people who do optics work, like like optical physics, who are using three D printers to make little gizmos. That are useful in optical physics because it's true if you go to the the big companies you buy a little tiny thing that might cost fifty dollars for some little tiny holder thing which you could print for nothing basically mm -hmm. may, the disadvantages of the print is that this is it's pretty precise and it's exactly what i want but it's made out of plastic yeah so i could have printed it on something more robust but it starts getting expensive so this is not a hunk of metal it's a hunk of plastic and it's nice it's light and it's painted many many times in different colors black in there to prevent uh reflections but it also if you sat on it you'd probably end up crushing it so yeah that's yeah, one of the instructions do not sit on this thing 
Yeah, when we talk next, I mean, we'll find out how many of the fifty uh, survived, how many did, how many got sat on. Hopefully, it'll be none. Um, you mentioned in in somewhere in you know while we were talking about that experiment, you mentioned you know remote viewing. You mentioned people coming in for experiments and things like that. You you mentioned the variance in how accurate people are with their remote viewing. I interviewed uh, Gail Hasten recently. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Um, and yeah, she seems to be an incredibly impressive remote viewer. Um, I just wondered whether you had any kind of interesting memories or, or you know, of, of experiences or experiments with Gail uh, that you wanted to share. Yeah, I, I actually published in one or two of my books uh, a, a telepathy session that we did with Gail mm-hmm. because Gail is one of those people who just has psychic things happening all the time. And she recounted a tale where she was in telepathic communication with a contractor who was putting uh, windows in her house. Yeah. Well, the contractor didn't know anything about telepathy and wasn't even sure he believed in it, but Gail was getting pretty good impressions from him. So we did a formal test then in the laboratory, the Gonsfeld telepathy test, Mm -hmm. where we put put Gail in the Gonsfeld condition with the the ping pong balls over the eyeballs and red light in her face and so on. And then the sender in this case was her her contractor. So we selected a random picture from a pool of pictures and gave that to, his name was Tom. And Tom sent this image to Gail. And Gail's in the Gunsfeld condition elsewhere. And over the course of 20 minutes, she's reporting anything that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. And we recorded that. And then I published that because what she was saying in the Gunsfeld case uh, was reflecting what what Tom was sending. In this case, it happened to be uh, the Great Pyramid of Cheops. Uh, and what Gail was reporting were these large monolithic structures. And I don't think she said pyramid, but basically the, if, if you were to look at a variety of pictures and then took her words and say, well, what do you think she's describing? It was obvious that it was a pyramid, big yeah. stone structure. So... Yeah. So that, I mean, that was, that was a formal experiment, but even informally, as you know, from interviewing her, that she has had a lot of exper- of experiences like this. Yeah. And so I, I put Gail into the category of somebody who is truly a natural psychic because she's not trying to do anything. Mm. It's just that she's, as compared to many people, she doesn't have the same kind of filters that other yeah. people have. Like she's, she's the, most of us, by the time you're adult, have some number of filters that are self-censoring what you're talking about and the way that you behave and what you're listening to and all of that stuff. She has fewer mm-hmm. than most people. And that's why I think she's actually closer to the raw material out there in which everything is connected all the time anyway, probably. Yeah. And it simply gets through. So she she's connected to the rest of the world and a, a more transparent way than the average person. Yeah. And, yeah, and it, fortunately we can even see that in an experiment. It is, it is amazing. Like some of the experiences she's had, some of the things she, she talked about when I spoke with her, like a uh, really just kind of mind boggling stuff. And the thing with the contractor that you just mentioned, like it's, it's kind of beautifully spontaneous in the sense that, you know, like nobody planned for this guy to come into the lab and stuff like that. It's just something I think, yeah, she had some kind of, like you said, she, she had a, a moment with him, like a telepathic moment or something. And then you were like, yeah, bring him in and let's, let's have some fun with that. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, that's wild. Is Gail, do you think, one of the most accurate remote viewers that you've worked with, or like, yeah? No, no, no. I mean, she she's she's very good in that, and somewhat unusual in that she can do it on demand, mm-hmm. which of course in the lab is exactly what you want. Um, but I've I've also uh, I've seen uh, Joe McMonagle at work and some of the other people who are on the Stargate program. Um, they're really really good. Yeah. Wow. And so, the, you know, the interesting thing about this is these kinds of phenomena, we're talking about psychic phenomena, uh, are probably always with us all the time. And most people are filtering them out. We just don't pay attention to it until we're in an unusual state of mind or something forces us to pay attention. But it, these are not things that are being created. Like we're, you know, we're not evoking it in the laboratory. We're allowing the phenomena to express itself. Yeah. And we hope that in, in the lab we can see something. So this is almost certainly everyone has these kinds of abilities that are being blocked. The, the number of people who can metaphorically open the gates and, and allow these kinds of impressions to come in, I would guess uh, at, a, at a very high level of control, probably one in a thousand people. Mm. So in other words, it's not that rare. To get up to the point where somebody can on demand get veridical information from anything anywhere, well, now that's rare. Maybe that's one in a hundred thousand or one in a million people. That's still a lot of people yeah. compared to the world population, which means that there's a fair number of people out there, somewhere in the, the thousands to ten thousands, who are extremely good mm-hmm. at doing these kinds of tasks. Finding them is another issue. Because maybe they know they have these these abilities and maybe they don't. Or maybe yeah. they don't want to talk about it. Maybe they don't want to be known for being really, really good at something like telepathy. Because that would be scary. And they'll they'll learn pretty quickly that you don't want to you don't want to reveal that. So interesting, one other thing I've heard from magicians is that the ones that are really good do not want to be known. Mm. Because they they still hear the echoes of witches being burned. And while in the old days, it would literally do that, even today, it would be dangerous to be known as somebody who does, who, who's able to, to exercise these kinds of abilities at will. Yeah. Now, in the case of magicians, they're using techniques that have been around a very long time, and either they have natural talent or they developed methods that, that work for them, but it would be scary. Like, you don't, you don't want, so they very explicitly look normal, yeah. look and behave normal. So the the ones who dress all in black and have multiple piercings and tattoos and everything, kind of like a like a severe gothic style person, maybe they have some skills, but I think a genuine mag- magician would not reveal it in that way because yeah. it's basically asking for trouble. Yeah, yeah, it's wild stuff, isn't it? Um... Wow. I, just let's talk quickly about a study you did, I think, about five years ago. I might be wrong on how long I could be well off. Um, you did a, a study kind of with charging chocolate, sending positive intentions to chocolate. I think you did some with tea as well. We both know Bill Bankston, who you put me in touch with, has, has done kind of similar things with water and I think cotton wool and, and maybe other things. Again, charging water, Bill with more of like the healing information, as he would put it, and you with, I guess, I think, more positive intention. But anyway, mm-hmm. what, what are your thoughts on all of this? Is it 
possible? Like, do you think after your research into this, is it possible to charge or load? Or again, the wording is kind of up for debate, but is it possible to charge an object or water or food with yeah, intention, energy, information, these kind of things? What are your thoughts on that? Well, based on the data, the answer is yes. Yeah. That, that you can set up uh, situations in double blind or or triple blind so that the people involved are, are not uh, accidentally biasing the results based on their expectations. Uh, and yeah, somehow you can set up con a context in an experiment to to see things that shouldn't be there by, by conventional reasoning. Mm -hmm. This is one of the reasons why I started studying the magical practices in more detail, because in the case of, say, uh, blessing chocolate to make people feel uh, have an elevated mood as compared to the same chocolate that was not blessed, mm -hmm. if that actually results in elevated mood in people using standard double-blind uh, clinical trial design, well, how do we how do we think about that? So you could get a significant result, uh, and it could be chance, right? Mm -hmm. the, the results may be highly statistically significant even. So you can say, well, it doesn't look like chance, but it could be. So you do many replications, and we've done that with many different kinds of physical targets. Well, how do we begin to understand how is that possible? Yeah. So did, did the chocolate change in some way? Is there a physical change in the structure itself? Uh, we, we were not able to test that in chocolate, but we did with water. We're able to see if there's a change in water. Yeah, we can see some molecular changes in the bonding structure of hydrogen and oxygen. Mm -hmm. Is that sufficient to explain why, if you use that water to uh, to hydrate seeds, that those seeds grow much, much better? Is it because of that bonding change that did that? Or, or is that a reflection of something else? So again, go back into the magical world. In the magical world, you don't know what does it. Right, yeah. you don't know that you're changing the structure. You don't know any of that stuff, and nor does it matter, which is really interesting. It becomes again an idea that it's the goal that's important. So, you you say this is what I want to happen. I want to feed this plant this water and have it grow a lot better than if I use some other water from the same source that wasn't blessed. Okay, so you do that experiment and it works. Well, so did the water change? Maybe. But if you, you think of it in terms of what I want at the end is a, is a, a bigger, healthier plant. And then, so you got to throw that into the universe and, and say, well, I, I don't, I'm not smart enough to figure out how to do that. Because I, like, I would need to know what's happening at the molecular level. And, or it, I don't know what that is. I don't care what that is. Just make it happen. Yeah. So at this point, then, the, the, the notion is that somehow this is un, you need to get it into your unconscious because the unconscious in that tradition is much closer attached to the rest of reality. It's like your, your consciousness, but mainly in the unconscious is part of the fabric of reality itself. So now I've, I'm connected with reality itself. I can start twisting and turning that fabric in ways so as to make this plant grow better. Mm. So how if we now go analytically and look at it and say, well, why did that happen? Maybe, in the process of selecting the seeds that will go into this batch versus that batch, it just so happens that during that selection process, these were healthier seeds than those. So nothing physically happened at all. It all happened at the level of the design of the experiment 
And somebody had to make a decision about how these seeds go there and that these seeds go there. Or maybe the seeds were put into the incubator in, in a more optimal position. Or maybe there really was something structural that happened that, that favored this result. So from a scientific perspective, that is not very satisfying. We, we want to know underlying mechanisms, like why exactly did this happen? And we, we're, we're working towards experiments that are trying to answer those questions, which is why we use things like spectrometers to look at the structure of the physical thing. Did it change somehow? But I don't think we're actually clever enough to figure it out at this point. Science is all about looking at mechanism. At least at this stage, what my interest in this is looking at the, this notion of teleological effects, goal-oriented effects, as though this is this is like part of the fabric of reality too, that we, we can manipulate things in many, many different ways in order to get the result that we want. Well, so let's say anytime you have an intention, let's say there's a million different ways that you can end up at that endpoint. So you look in physics, is there anything like that at all in physics? And the answer is yes. The, the principle of least action, which is one of the most fundamental principles in physics, somehow the least amount of energy is used in order to achieve a certain result. Well, how does that happen? You kind of go back and think about Feynman's idea of multiple paths that uh, quantum mechanics you can think of as if this thing is going to get from here to there, there could be a bazillion different ways it can get from here to there. And so in the quantum mechanical sense, then what's happening is that it tests all of the possible paths at once. And it chooses one that happens to be the best one. Well, yeah, that would be great. That's kind of along the lines of what quantum computing is about. It tests all possible solutions and chooses one that, that happens to be optimal. So that is kind of a quasi theory of how magic works at some other level of, of the way things happen. Maybe that's a viable way of thinking about this. Unfortunately, we can't measure all bazillion different ways of getting from here to there, but we can measure whether or not you got there in an optimal yeah. way. And that's yeah. essentially what these experiments are about. Yeah. So we're, we're at the stage of like, we, it seems to work. We can see it working, but we don't know. Yeah. We don't know how we're with it. That's still <laughs> quite a mountain. Yeah. yeah there's, as you say, I totally understand the reasoning. It makes sense. Um, if you had like uh, just a couple of minutes or a few minutes, say like less than five, so maybe two or three minutes to convince uh, a really hardcore devout skeptic or scoffer in the words of Stanley Krippner, somebody that really, you know, thought, Psychic phenomena was just what just load of nonsense, load of absolute rubbish, uh, totally based on nothing. What would you say to this person? You know, this person that's completely doubting. Uh, in just a, a couple of minutes, if you could summarize it, if you want to include any stats or experiments or anything specific, um, yeah, how would you tackle that? I wouldn't. <laughs> I, I wouldn't bother. Yeah, because if there's anything that we we know today is uh, that people believe what they want to believe, and facts and everything else. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So it, I have learned that it is a waste of time to to do uh, engage in debates with people who don't want to learn anything. So that, so I don't do it. Yeah, it's it's just not worth my time. It's not worth their time either. So for somebody who is at least open to the the possibility, I will say uh, you you can look in mainstream journals now at, at multiple meta analyses which are repeated, looking at, at long lists of repeated experiments. 
and assess using the same methods that are used in other areas of science to assess whether an effect is repeatable or not. Mm -hmm. And they show that these experiments, we're talking about experiments in telepathy and clairvoyance or remote viewing and a variety of other kinds of, of experiments, about 10 different classes, that the effects are generally small, but they're repeatable, independently repeatable effects, which is what science relies on. We need to see repeatability. The effects are small magnitude. They're not going to be in your face. You need to understand statistics in order to understand why we have high confidence that these things are real. Most people either aren't interested in, in looking at these studies or they'll, they'll use a, a pretty common tactic for not having to pay attention to things you don't want to pay attention to, which is to say there are methodological problems. Mm-hmm which if on occasion I'll say, well, what, what exactly do you mean? What problems are you talking about? And maybe they'll come up with something, but usually not. They just, I mean, it's, it's, these are shorthand, easy ways of saying, no, I don't need to pay attention to that because yeah. methodological problems is not published in science and nature. It's, you know, a long list of things. So I don't believe it. Just the other day, I was talking to somebody about, there's an expert in, in an area of genetics who was saying, uh, we told them that I'm also co-founder of a company doing genetic engineering. And we came up with a very interesting result. And he said, no, it's impossible. He said, well, no, we, we published this in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, a top-rated journal. He said, no, a lot of the things published in Science and Nature and PNAS and the other journals, they're, they're wrong. He said, really? They're, they're all wrong? Yeah, they're wrong. So. I mean, well, what do we do then? Well, how how do we understand anything if if you just sort of dismiss things quickly because, <laughs> yeah. well, but but this is common, right? People believe what they want to believe. In this particular case, yeah, he has a long career in in studying these kinds of things, and as a result, built up a certain sense of what he will believe and what he won't believe. But it was a little bit shocking just to to hear him dismiss as this is impossible. This cannot be. Yeah. To which we're saying, well, maybe it can't be, but we got a lot of experiments showing that, in fact, it is. So, you know, what what do we do then? So it's much worse when you're talking about psychic phenomena, because if somebody has not had those experiences and they don't want to look at the data, or they don't believe the data, there's nothing that can be said. No. No, I agree. It's it's that people are very yeah. If, if they don't, if they're not open minded, as you say, then this is just people are totally stuck into what they want to think right now. It reminded me of the the quote. I think it's Charles Charles Richet that said a Nobel Prize winning I think physicist. He said, I think it was. I'm going to paraphrase. I might get a little bit wrong, but I never said it was possible. I only said it was true. Something like that. And that kind of epitomizes yeah, I this. I think stuff. that was that was William Crookes. I think who may have said that. Maybe they said something similar because I know Charles Richet definitely said something similar to that or along those lines because I've actually got it on the, the YouTube description at least as uh, of right now. Um, yeah. But yeah, I might have got it slightly wrong. I'll send. I'll check after and tell you. <laughs> um, another another quick question here: How do you think the world would change if everybody kind of instantly overnight download knew what you know about psychic phenomena? Uh, <clears throat> it might not change at all because uh, I have a similar question and answers from magicians that I've spoken to. Mm-hmm. Like I said, one one of the reasons why this is not simply interesting as an academic exercise to see if psychic phenomena are really true, but it tells us something about who we are and the nature of reality. 
So that's okay. That's kind of interesting, but only if it really matters, right? Does it matter if we know? And my answer would be, yeah, it matters if we understand who and what we are, because if our models of reality are slightly off, then we're going to behave as a civilization in certain ways and may not be to our benefit. So if materialism as a doctrine is not completely correct, and materialism pretty much says that your your internal sense of awareness is just a side effect of brain processing, that gives rise essentially to a nihilistic philosophy. Nothing matters, it's all random, you know, we're here, we, we live, we die, and that's the end of it. Mm-hmm. A nihilistic philosophy can be pointed to as one of the reasons why the world gets in really serious trouble about using up all the resources and the hell with other people and get all the toys you can and all of that. So maybe if that philosophy is slightly wrong, we better figure it out because it looks like we're we're a train heading off the edge of a cliff. And some of that is related to this idea of of a nihilistic universe, purposeless. So I mentioned this to some of my magician friends and they said, even if people did know this, they knew that we lived in some kind of a, a a purposeful universe where consciousness was really important and all of that, and maybe even pushing towards uh, notions that are popular within spirituality, not religion, but spiritual ideas. There's just something bigger and connective and all of that. Would that make us a more moral society? And their answer was no, it would not. And there's actually historical evidence that that is true. We, we're very aggressive primates. We're hardwired for aggression. That has been one of our strengths. The, the, the reason why our species has lasted so long is that a combination of resilience and being very clever and very aggressive. Mm. So if we suddenly all became passive with rainbows and unicorns, we may not have the resilience that would allow us to continue to exist as a species if some major catastrophe came along. Yeah. And so I see that side, but I still think you're right that I think it would I think it would change. I think it would change how people treat each other, how they treat the environment, the planet, the natural world. I think it would improve, you know, there's no other I think pers- I I have to believe that. I have to think that if people realized how connected they were and how maybe, you know, our our, our experience continues after we die and maybe, you know, what I do can affect other people and what I think maybe can affect, you know, things I, I do I have to think that yeah people would be different to how they are now in this the world we're in today where everybody's totally not everybody but you know the vast majority of people are totally focused on their own thing their own life what they're doing nothing else matters if they come up with their own facts and you know like we were just saying about psychic phenomena and anything that goes contrary to what they believe they don't want to hear it I think a lot of that would change yeah if if people were more aware um, and I guess a great book I'd recommend for, for you if you're interested in anybody that's listening is Disconnected by Steve Taylor. He kind of talks a lot about, yeah, that kind of fall from connection because, yeah, that we kind of started off our, our innate, you know, our nature was that we were more connected to each other and the planet and we've kind of fallen away from that. And and we are definitely historically aggressive animals, but recent our recent history in like the last 100, 200 years is where we've been the most murderous and the most like callous, I guess, with killing you know the amount of people that we have and and yeah we're not in a great shape are we if we step back and look at the world um we've become much more efficient at what we were doing before yeah yeah pretty much better at it yeah better at the bad stuff 
Um, I've got a great question here from Stanley Krippner, uh, a legend in this field, just like yourself. Um, well, Stanley's got a few years on you. Um, what role, if any, did anomalous experiences, so precognitive dreams, near-death experiences, healing at a distance, etc., etc., what role, if any, did these kinds of anomalous experiences play in human evolution? In evolution? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, I think a case can be made that uh, we we would not have advanced into the civilization that we currently have if these phenomena were not did not exist. Mm -hmm. And and what by that I mean that if you you look at the the great inventions in virtually any any area, whether it's science or technology or politics or art or whatever, and you look at the biographies and histories of these people, first of all, they're not normal people. They're unusual in various ways. And one of the ways that they're unusual is that they get downloads. They get information from places. And you see this especially in art, that somehow something comes through the artist and is expressed. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't know where it comes from. Although if you ask, as a, as a group, you ask artists about belief in psychic phenomena, it's way above the average person. So they get these impressions all the time. Much of the same is true for famous inventors and scientists who get inspirations in the same way. Much of it is true uh, for genius, genius mm -hmm. level people. They, even for exceptionally intelligent people, when you, as as a rule, if you you start asking these people about these sorts of questions about connectedness and these kinds of abilities and so on, more often than not, you'll find that they they actually believe in these things because that is part of their experience. Mm. It's also somewhat rare, right? You, I mean, if you think about us as an ant colony, each of us has a little role to play in the workings of civilization. Unless you're, you're willing and able to live by yourself out in the woods and be totally self-sufficient, well, that would never lead to civilization. Yeah. The civilization is all of us working together to achieve things that no individual can do then some people are going to dig a ditch for a living and be perfectly happy with that. And some people are going to do other things. And, and you need all of those people in order to make the whole thing work. Mm. Some small percentage of those people are going to be the eccentrics, the crazy people, the shamans, the ones who are coming up with wild ideas, the maybe the artists as well. Yeah. Well, those are the ones at, at the edge where, as I was saying before with Gail, their filters are different. And from a from the point of view of a society, you need those people desperately, because mm. those are the ones who see the solution to problems that that otherwise everyone else can't see. And and inventions and it's the part of the resilience. And by the way, you probably also need people who are defined or diagnosed as mentally ill, mm -hmm. right? Schizophrenia yeah. is an easy de de is an easy way to say this person is like flagrantly psychic. They can't hardly even tell the difference between themselves and everybody else. In some context, that is really, really important to have somebody like that. That is the shaman of old. In today's society, we give them drugs because they don't, they're not behaving right. But in other societies, they will be the people who will act crazy, but then every so often give you a lucid answer like, oh, tomorrow we better not be here because there's going to be a tsunami. Well, in tribal societies, people would pay attention to that because yeah. it's a yeah, crazy Uncle Joe. He's not right in the head, but he knows where the animals are. He tells us when danger is. And so we've learned to pay attention to that kind of person. And they took care of him. 
So modern society doesn't do very well in this regard. And so the, uh, you find people occasionally like Gail who are pretty well grounded, like mm -hmm. certainly fine member of society and is not crazy and all of that, and still has some of that ability. But I suspect some of those people out there who we who, who are outside of society, who can't live in society with the rest of us very well and are seen as crazy, mm -hmm. are actually super psychic and just need to be taken care of. Yeah, that's a fascinating thought. That is a really fascinating thought. Yeah. yeah. And again, it has to, goes back to the resilience of a species. Mm -hmm. If all species were exactly the same, it would be very fragile. So the diversity of, of the species is very important. Yeah. Great answer. And I'm thinking, yeah, these downloads, they're coming from the conscious universe, right? Just a little plug for your amazing book that, that obviously uh, opened my mind to all of this stuff. I got a couple of quick questions here from one of my patrons, Robert in Singapore. Um, firstly, he wants to know, he, well, he's wondering, are, are you aware of any interesting or conclusive studies related to twins psychic abilities? Uh, there's just a paper. I don't know if it's published yet, but a colleague has reported a paper. Uh, he's in Australia. And he did a an EEG correlation study where you you take twins and separate them, mm -hmm. uh, and he used a, a method of EEG analysis called functional connectivity. So it's a more complex way of looking at how the how the portions of the brain are connected to each other. And he found quite strong evidence in identical twins uh, that they they had that kind of connection. Uh, interestingly, in 1965 in Science. There was an article published with identical twins, 15 pairs of identical twins. And the method that was used at the time was, was rudimentary because EEG technology was not that good at the time. But they had both had EEGs on. And the stimulus in this case was for one, one twin was told to close their eyes. Mm -hmm. That would produce alpha, alpha rhythms in their brain. And then they looked at the other twin and see if there was an increase in alpha. So the report in, the, in science was that two pairs of the 15 pairs showed increase, significant increase in alpha. That, of course, got a lot of feedback, mostly negative, from readers of science saying, what in the world are you publishing this in science for? Because it wasn't even a quantitative study. It was a qualitative study. They were just looking at, this, at the, the squiggles on, on the paper uh, output of the EEG. Not, yeah. And no quantitative results at all. And even at the time, Charlie Tart, who's who's famous parapsychologist, wrote a, a letter that was published in Science saying, if this were submitted to a parapsychology journal, it wouldn't be accepted because it was just not good enough. Yeah. So there, there was a, a mystery then. How did these two people, they were ophthalmology professors who published this study, where in the world did this come from and how did it get into science? And nobody knew for a very, very long time. Well, I finally figured it out accidentally about five or six months ago. I get an email from somebody, I think in from Croatia, who said, uh, did you did you ever find out what these these two people, their names were Dwayne and Berent, did they ever do any follow-up studies? Did they publish anything else? And I said, well, I've never heard of anything. We don't, we don't know what happened with that. Yeah. The study in science said there was an NIH-funded study which seemed extremely unlikely. The NIH is not going to fund a study like that, but that's what they—that's what it said. So we thought, well, that, that's strange. There are a lot of strange aspects to it. So I started snooping around in one of the uh, the, the def defense 
intelligence contracting division, something I forget exactly the name, but it's mm -hmm. a place that holds reports that were done for, for military or intelligence agencies that were never, that may have been published, but maybe not, but they have the reports. So I went there and started snooping around and found, sure enough, those two authors had done a study, a follow-up study using EEG, but I've never seen that before. I mean, it was a report. So I called the a person at the at the center and I said, could I get a copy of this thing? It doesn't say that it's classified. So it, like it should. And so the lady went to check and she said, yeah, we have that. No one has ever requested it before. It's only available in paper, wow. but we can digitize it for you if you want. So that, yeah. So a, a, about two months later, I get the digitized copy and sure enough, it is the same two people a couple of years later, had done a more rigorous study, this time with quantitative measures. Mm -hmm. Again, 15 pairs of identical twins with an addition of a third person. So two twins and a third person who is not related. So you'd have like one sender, two possible receivers, and they tried all yeah. possible combinations. Cool. With an objective way of measuring. And they found 11 of the 15 pairs, sometimes being the identical twins and sometimes a twin and a stranger not related 11 of 15 then of these sessions showed a significant result highly significant result and this time it showed that the the funders were the office of naval research i oh, really so the interesting connection here is that while the nih could have given a grant the money for that grant we i kind of suspect did not come from the nih came th circuitously through Congress, through some agency that gave the money to do this. Yeah. And then the second part of this mystery then that is maybe solved is that this is right around the same time that the U.S. government Stargate program began. So this means that there were elements within the government and the military and intelligence that were interested in these kinds of things and began to give bits of funding here and there and we don't know who else may have been doing these studies because we haven't found them yet. But I kind of suspect that this, the reason why this got into, into science is because somebody suggested you should publish this in yeah. science, even though it wasn't the most rigorous study ever done, to act as a kind of a, a signal. You know, we think this is important. And sure enough, a couple of years later, Stargate began. So somebody somewhere was hearing studies from at the time the Soviet Union or somewhere else saying somebody's working on this, we probably should work on this too. And that's that's how that all began. So this is speculation on my part because I don't I, I don't have the entire history, but at least one tiny little bit of the history is, is now revealed. And so we have a digital copy of this follow-up study, which was never published, mm. which gave much better results than than the one that was published. Wow. Yeah, that's so fascinating. All of it um, in the study itself. Was there a big difference between in the in the follow up, like twin to twin or twin to the other receiver? Was it kind of similar? Was it marked? Um, it didn't you... seem to matter. No. So do you think right. it's like kind of like that? Like maybe with when it's twins, there's some kind of like unspoken, you know, unintentional connection uh, that goes on that's above the normal. But then when you're actually trying to direct intention towards it it just kind of reverts to the same level as just if i was trying to you know send something to you or whatever transmit something to you um, yeah they did not report that there was a significant improvement between the identical twins as compared to the stranger 
Yeah. So, the, I mean, there's a number of ways of interpreting that. You'd need to do lots and lots of follow-up studies to figure yeah. out why. Yeah. It could have been as, as same as in the magical traditions. What you want to see is a correlation between two people. Mm. How that happens, we I mean, the, the closest metaphor we have is quantum entanglement. This yeah. is why it's appealing to work with identical twins, because at least they're pretty identical. Maybe they're entangled. Maybe that would be the mechanism. I think it's way more complicated than that, mm. because whenever you do an experiment, you have a hypothesis and expectation about what you would like to see. Mm -hmm. And there may be lots of ways that you can end up getting that result. So 11 of 15 pairs yeah. with very significant results show that something was happening yeah. there. Yeah, definitely. How it happened, we we don't know yet. I As mean, with everybody so, else. Well, so on one hand, it's frustrating because you know, people will say, well, then how did that happen? We don't actually know how it happened. We have models maybe that could explain it. But so it's frustrating on that end. It's also extremely exciting from a scientific perspective because now you have a thing which doesn't quite fit anything else, which is it means that it's like pregnant waiting for some new explanation. And the, I think the nature of that kind of explanation will be like a step function in science. It's yeah. not only that everything is connected in some deep way, but that there are ways in which things can happen that, that again, are pointing back to a Feynman's multiple path, mm -hmm. things that, that there, there seem to be ways of manipulating that, or at least optimizing those kinds of decisions. And that becomes, that starting to paint a very different kind of picture of the nature of reality. It's not just this passive fabric out there that things arise out of it, but it seems to have some sort of meaning that is linked back to to us providing the meaning yeah. like how could meaning be part of, woven into the fabric of reality right that starts sounding like a conscious universe yeah. at some point right we're yeah. little bits of that we're made out of the same stuff and we have meaning and purpose so maybe that is true just in general it's a very different model of reality from a scientific perspective and is probably closer to mythical models of reality that going all the way back to the greek gods and things like that yeah yeah fascinating thoughts let me try and squeeze in two or three more questions if i can um i will we'll see how we can get on with them um so first of all just another one from robert as he's wondering if you have any suggested procedures or tips or advice if people want to attempt their own psychic experiments um so example transmitting and receiving images or messages between two people just if you've got any yeah, kind of uh, succinct tips or advice Well, there are, there's many, many methods. I'm mostly used to methods which are designed to very rigorously exclude ordinary explanations of things, like laboratory type studies. Yeah. Uh, there are books out there that, that tell you how to do simple psychic tasks. Uh, all of them are, are useful. I mean, they're they're easy enough to do. Uh, you can get a, a deck of ESP cards pretty simply. There are lots of people who make such things. Um, I, I, one of these days, I'd probably need to write some sort of a uh, how to how to test this yourself. Maybe I'll put that in the book I'm writing now, mm -hmm. which is it's a book about magic, but it's the same sort of thing. How would you test to know for sure that this was a real yeah, thing? How to, how to convince yourself. Yeah, how to how to even just have fun at it to to see what what kind of results do you get? Mm -hmm. So, 
In my previous book, Real Magic, I, I do have a, a chapter in there on how to make a sigil, how to use and make a sigil. So I, I did a, a podcast one time, uh, and one of the, the, the sigils that I was mentioning was, uh, I want $10. I want to find a $10 bill. And so I use that as an intention to explain how you would create a sigil that captured that idea and then what to do with the sigil and all that. So one of the interviewers on the podcast said that he read that, he tried it, and he found a $10 bill. And it freaked him out so badly that he didn't read the rest of the book. <laughs> so there, there's, I mean, people can react to these things in different ways. In this case, it was a, a magical, simple magical method that for him worked exactly in the way that you want it to work. Like he, he just $10 bill just showed up one day. Well, not just one day, but shortly after he did, he created the sigil. Uh, I've heard from several other people who got a lot more than $10 by using the same method. So it could be coincidence. It could be uh, a goal-oriented effect, right? So something happened and it just happened to match when they were doing it, like a synchronicity. Uh, so somebody does a, an experiment on telepathy in a casual way, even if it's done well, and they get really re good results, they're gonna have to deal with what that might do to their belief systems. Yeah. Right, it could do anything from oh, that's interesting, to shatter their beliefs about what was possible. So, yeah. you know, there, anytime you encounter something that's quite different than what you'd already usually expect, you have to be prepared for that. Yeah. Are you ready to have your mind blown? Yeah. Well, well turned, well, well turned upside down. Yeah, you better better be ready for what you might find out if you start to get <laughs> into yeah, these areas. Be, be yeah. careful about what you ask for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned in a recent talk with Avi Loeb uh, on the Parry, I think, I don't know if they pronounce it like that, the Parry YouTube channel. Um, you, you mentioned the idea that remote viewers could be an interesting or more effective alternative to the current SETI program, which, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which use like radio waves and things like that. Um, coincidentally, SETI just got given a $200 million grant um, to play with more radio waves. So if I gave you that $200 million grant, what would you do with it? And, and kind of please elaborate on, like in terms of the SETI, and please elaborate on the idea that, that remote viewers would be, yeah, a better alternative uh, to, to the current model. Well, the, the current way of, uh, the way the SETI has worked for a long time has been to imagine that there are other civilizations out there who have, have evolved in the same way that we have, and mm -hmm. they developed radio waves and broadcast and so on. So there should be, they should, those signals should be out there somewhere. And if we're lucky enough, they will waft towards the earth and be strong enough for us to be able to pick it up out of out of the noise background. Mm -hmm. So it's not unreasonable. The, the signals are going to be really weak, but that's okay. We can pick up weak signals. But I think it's much more likely that since we're beginning to learn that consciousness has certain capacities as well that transcends uh, electromagnetics, uh, that we're in a, a portion of the galaxy maybe the universe which is relatively young so we haven't evolved as long as maybe some other civilizations have if we imagine what we know about consciousness today times a hundred thousand years later yeah. assuming we survive as a species but imagine that that happens so science is only a couple hundred years old We've, we've learned quite a bit during then. We're beginning right on the edge now of learning that consciousness is actually way more important than it was previously thought of 
except if you go back a few thousand years when they were thinking of it in different ways. Yeah. But we're still, science is catching up. So, okay, we go 100,000 years in the future and we find that uh, things like telepathy or as we think of it today are so elementary that that becomes the standard way of communicating on anything. Mm -hmm. And we know that it's not blocked by electromagnetics. It's not mediated by electromagnetics. It's instantaneous from here to there, all kinds of things of that sort. Well, it would make sense then to have people who we start selecting today who are really good at picking up these kinds of things. There are plenty of people out there who say that they're channelers and picking up people from Zeta Reticuli. Well, let's figure out a way of vetting yeah. whether what they're, what they're saying is actually true. Maybe they are picking up something. I mean, there's, as I said, a lot of people who get these kind of downloads all the time. But there's, at this point, virtually no way to vet and no efforts to vet whether or not what they're saying is real. So let's take some millions of dollars and create some kind of a training or testing program to find the 100,000 people around the planet who actually are picking up this kind of information and then compare what they're getting and figuring out a way of seeing, you know, can they also transmit? Would transmitting yeah. actually be a good idea or not a good idea? Maybe the rest of the galaxy is waiting for us to essentially wake up. Yeah, And because that's the method of communication that's being used by the rest of the galaxy or the universe, mm. that's what I would do. I mean, yeah. there's certainly the, the searching for radio waves is also an interesting thing to do. I wouldn't stop it. Yeah, it's what I don't think I don't think that it would be anywhere near as viable as a much more advanced technology, essentially, of consciousness itself. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great answer. The radio wave should be like one string of, you know, a, a, from a bow. It, it should be one of many ways yeah. that we're trying to look at these things rather than just yeah, putting 200 million pounds worth of eggs in, in one basket. Um, yeah. yeah. No, that yeah. The, the current method that is being used is looking where the light is. Mm. That's, what, that's what we always do, right? We have this instrument, put all the money in this instrument and go for it without thinking of we're a young society. We've, we're just barely out of the radio broadcast age, and we think we're going to start finding other star people that are using the same method or used it eons ago, and now they're way advanced from us. Well, you know, we'll think out of the box. Mm. Yeah, I love the thing you said that maybe they're waiting for us to catch up the rest of the universe or the galaxy or whatever. Maybe that's how yeah the communication is done, and and yeah, we're kind of lagging behind. It, one one person I spoke to, Natalie Dyer. Do you know Natalie Dyer? She's um in these areas, the, the areas that you're in parapsychology. She's involved with Reiki. She's a neuroscience by background and things like that. Um, she's very much on the science side of things, looking into these. Anyway, she had like a weird experience where she had in essence some kind of download thing and and it totally freaked her out i think she said it was the first time she spoke about it, it was on my podcast and it felt she said it felt like it was from yeah well it seemed to be from some kind of intelligence off world wherever and she didn't really know what to do with it or make of it or anything like that um and like you say i guess lots of people have these experiences i'd love to know what's going on with that i'd love it if we could yeah get some resources into vetting it and trying to find out more about it and yeah fascinating untapped potential um i've got so many more questions i'd love to ask you dean but i guess we're gonna have to, to leave them for now because i, I want to let you kind of get on with your your day and get back to, to whatever it is you're you're doing i know how busy you are um so i guess we'll leave it there if there's any last words that you have for people that have watched or listened um please uh please the floor is yours laughing buddha 
I mean, that I, I like to keep these little things around to remind even myself that uh, maintaining this as a in a lighthearted way is, is one of the ways of preventing yourself from diving down a rabbit hole that you can't get out of. Yeah. Or even yeah. if you could get out of it, it takes a lot of effort to come out of these rabbit holes. So even though, yes, I'm studying something that is, is considered somewhere between heterodox and her, her, heresy, uh, I still look at it in a, in a playful manner. Yeah. And I, I look at, at any kind of scientific efforts that I'm doing in a, in a kind of a playful manner, not as, as I try to make a distinction then between being childish about it and childlike. So being childlike is very important, especially when working on the edge of the known, because you don't want your prejudices to shape what you're seeing. Mm. You want to reduce that as much as possible. So you look at it with a form of innocence. So if it turned out, for example, sometimes a skeptic will say, well, what if it turned out that somebody did this whole series of studies and was never able to replicate what you're doing? And not only that, found that what you're doing is a mistake. You know, well, then what? I would say, uh, well, I would be disappointed. But on the other hand, I'm also realistic. I don't want to waste my time doing something that's, that's wrong. Yeah. So at minimum, I would fix it and not make those mistakes again. But I've been pretty well convinced both by experiences that other people have told me and experiences I've had myself in the laboratory that this is probably not wrong. There may be better ways of doing this kind of, of research and better ways of interpreting it and so on. Uh, but it would take a lot at this point to convince me that this is completely off the beam. There's just yeah. way too much historical and current evidence suggesting that we're on to something. And I also would say that if you look at how science in general, science and scholarship have changed opinions about the importance of consciousness in the physical world over the past 20 or 30 years, it is rising exponentially now. That tells me that we're probably riding an actual wave and not an illusory wave. Yeah. So there are many pointers that suggest to me that we're, we're on to something. We don't exactly know what that something is yet, uh, but when we find out someday or as we learn more about it, that has the potential of changing a lot of things. Yeah. We hope it changes it in a positive direction, and I think it probably would, but time will tell. Mm, absolutely, it will be a new paradigm. And what you were saying about keeping it fun and, and light and everything, it just reminds me of you know advice that people, Lloyd Auerbach and many others tell me that the conditions that are best suited for these kind of phenomena is when you're having fun and and you you know the energy is light and fun and and happy and and that's when these things seem to to manifest more than ever right. um anyway i really appreciate it dean thank you for your time thanks for talking with me again uh, i look forward to doing it again uh, next year wish you all my best thank you thank you to dean raiden for talking with me thank you to our patrons for their direct help and thank you for listening. Please see the description for links and click subscribe to continue unraveling the universe with us. If you enjoy our show and want to help us grow, please try to find us one new listener this month via social media or whatever means necessary. If each of you find us just one new listener this month, we will double in size, theoretically. Thank you. We are so grateful for your help.